So this is Exodus chapter 17, and I'm starting from verse 1. We're going to be thinking about the Holy Spirit today on Pentecost Sunday. Not so much to, to give a theology of the Holy Spirit, which we can do, but more to, to create a thirst and a hunger for Him. Exodus 17 verse 1 says, The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there. And they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. Father, we thank you for your word. It is truth. It is life. It nourishes us. It teaches us. It equips us. It strengthens us. Father, this morning, may your spirit and your word together do a deep work in our hearts and cause us to yearn and to hunger and to thirst for the presence and the power of God to see our lives transformed and our community transformed. In Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so this is a, an odd little scene in Exodus 17 because the people are yapping yet again at Moses. They have seen the deliverance of God delivering them from Egypt. They've seen miracles. They have seen provision and they're still gurning and they're still not happy. And they say that God and Moses have only brought them out into the desert for them to die of thirst and they might as well have stayed where they were. And an interesting little scene develops that I want to just use as a sort of springboard into, into the thoughts this morning. God says to Moses in verse 5, walk on out in front of the people. Now I want you to picture this. God gave you an imagination. Use it when you read the Bible. Picture the scene. I often say make a movie of the scene in your mind. What does it look like? Where is everybody standing? What music's playing? Where's the camera What's happening in the scene? Picture the scene. God says to Moses, go out in front of the people. This is a public event. He didn't say go away from them. He didn't say go into some sort of little sneaky corner behind a bush. Go out in front of the people. Go out ahead of them. What's going to happen is going to be public and it's going to be seen. And he says to Moses as well, bring the elders now, there's something really important that's brewing here. You go out in front of everybody and you bring the elders, Moses, as well. And not only in verse 5 does he bring the elders, but it says that he's to bring the staff with which he struck the Nile. 
Now, if you're familiar with it, whenever Moses, back in Egypt, took the staff, the shepherd's staff that, that, that God used powerfully through Moses, and he struck the Nile River with it, the Nile River, the water turned into blood. And it was a staff of judgment on that occasion. Now, you've got to bear all this in mind. We're going somewhere here. So Moses is out in front of the people. It's public. He's got the elders with him. It's serious. The leadership are all there. And he has a rod of judgment in his hand. And what what the writer is doing here is he is setting up a trial scene. You get this a lot in your Old Testament. You get it particularly in Isaiah. You will get everything in place that a trial is taking place. We're going to court. A trial is taking place. But as you read this, you're sort of thinking there's something missing. We've got the courtroom set up. We've got the, the judge with his staff of judgment. We've got the elders. It's all public. It's all in front of everybody. But there's something missing. Who is on trial? Where is the, the guy that, that is being tried here? Where's the person that a charge is being brought against? There's none there. And then God says in verse 6, I will stand there before you. God is going on trial in this scene. I will stand there before you. You set up your court case and I will come and I will stand. Because the people are bringing a charge against Moses, which ultimately is a charge against God. That he doesn't love them, that he won't look after them, that he's delivered them just to die in the wilderness. God in this scene is on trial. Can you see it? Have you got it in your mind? Whatever way you picture the wilderness and and these people all standing around. And and it says in in verse 6, I will stand there before you. Now, in my Bible here, it says, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Now, I've checked this, and it should say, I will stand on the rock at Horeb. On the rock. Your Bible might say that, but I will stand on the rock. And what's going on here is Horeb is the place where Moses met God back at the burning bush. Horeb is the place where God revealed his character and said, I am who I am. Now, this is all building. You're going to have to pull this all together because it'll all weave nicely together, hopefully later on. But what you've got in this scene is God standing on the rock. We're going to see the character of God again. Just like we saw the character of God at Horeb when he said, I am who I am. Here again, we're going to see the character of God displayed. And just to give you a wee bit of background about why standing on the rock is important. Um, you will remember that a few chapters later in Exodus, the children of Israel made a golden calf. And we give them an awful hard time about that because we say, ah, idolatry. Well, If you read the passage, what you find is that their intention was to build the golden calf and the following day to have a festival to the Lord, not to engage in idolatry. That was not their intention. What they did was wrong. I'll explain why they did it. But their intention was that they were going to have a festival to the Lord. And by building this golden calf, that would facilitate that. And the reason they did that was because they had lived in Egypt for 400 years. And in Egypt, there was a God called Ta. And this God rode on the back of a bull called the Apis Bull. And what you did was you made the bull 
and then you believed that your God appeared on the back of the bull for you to worship him. And the children of Israel have got that in their minds from their time of Egypt. And I believe whenever they went and made the golden calf, they thought God would show up on the golden calf because that's what they had learned in Egypt. They were totally wrong, of course, but I don't think they were as as evil in their intentions as we sometimes make them out to be because their intention was to have a festival to the Lord. They were just going the wrong way about it and they got caught up in all sorts of silliness and got judged for it. But the point was, make the bull and the God will show up on the bull. And what, G, or what, what, what Moses is doing here and what God is doing here is he's saying, I'm going to show up on the rock. You come to the rock and I'm going to stand on the rock. Not on a bull, not on a calf. I'm going to stand on the rock and be associated with the rock. So whatever happens to the rock happens to me. That's the scene we've got. And the trial then begins. And what God does is he basically says to Moses and the people of Israel, hit me and see how I bleed. Whack me and see what comes out of me. You're moaning about my character. You're moaning about my faithfulness. You think I mean you harm rather than good. Well, I'm going to put myself on trial in front of you. Why don't you come along with that stick that you use to judge the river Nile? You come and you take that stick and hit me with it and see what happens. He publicly in front of everyone puts himself on trial and says, whack me and see how I bleed. Have you ever heard of someone saying that they bleed a certain color because that's the color of their football team or, or something daft like that, you know? Well, God basically says, you come and you whack me and you see what comes out. And whenever they whack him with the staff, because by hitting the rock, God's associating himself with the rock. And by hitting the rock, they're hitting God. Powerful moment where he just puts himself in that position. Whenever Moses strikes the rock, water comes out of the rock. Don't know what that looked like, but it must have been amazing to see. Just silence all around as the people were waiting. They've been slabbering against God. And there's a heaviness and a weightiness to this whole scene. Bang, the stick hits the rock. And there's just complete what's going to happen. And then this water starts flowing. God says, this is my character. Hit me and I bleed life. <laughs> I don't bleed death. I didn't bring you here to kill you. I didn't bring you here to abandon you. You whack me and what comes out of me is life-giving. Hit me and see how I bleed. I want you to hold that scene in your thought because we'll come back to it later. Water features a lot in the scriptures. And if you go to Ezekiel, and I'd love you to go there. You know, so I know it's sometimes easy just to sit and listen and not bother to turn the pages, but I'd love you to go to Ezekiel 47. Again, this will be a familiar passage for some of you. In Ezekiel 47, <clears throat> it's a vision that Ezekiel has of a temple. And remember from a message maybe that we did before a few months ago, don't, don't associate the word temple just with a building or a structure. A temple is somewhere where people encounter the presence of God. 
That could be a building, it could be under a tree. A temple is where people encounter God's presence. And features of a temple usually include an altar, a river, or some source of water, and a tree. If you track through the early books of the Old Testament, you'll see that theme over and over and over again. But here Ezekiel is having a vision of a temple. It says in in the first verse, The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from the south side of the temple, south of the altar. Again, picture it, whatever it looks like. I don't care whether you get a correct depiction of the temple. Just picture a building. And in that building, there is an altar. And from the altar, from under the altar, there is water starting to flow. And as he then comes out of the temple, he's led out in this vision by the man. And it says in, in verse 3 at the end of the verse, he's, he's walking away from the temple in the water and it's ankle deep. And then he goes out another distance and the water is knee deep. And he goes out a bit further and it's up to the waist at the end of verse 4. And in verse 5, it's deep enough to swim in. Can you see the temple? Can you see the altar? Can you see the river that is coming from the altar that is, that is gradually starts as a trickle and then becomes deep enough to swim in? And I love what happens to the river. This is really one of my favorite verses in, in the whole scripture. We, we read on and it says in verse 8, The water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah where it enters into the sea. That sea is not any old sea. It's the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because everything in it is dead. It's good, isn't it? The Dead Sea. But look on. This is class. Oh, this is class. This is, this is what the Holy Ghost wants to do in revival in a land and through a people. This is flowing, this river is flowing into the Dead Sea. But it says at, at, at the end of verse 8, when it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. Living water in the river flows into the Dead Sea. Which one is going to pollute the other one? Is the living water in the river going to be polluted by the dead water and become salty and stagnant and dead? No, the river empties into the sea and the water in the sea becomes fresh. That's the Holy Ghost moving through the people of God into this dead world. Verse 9, swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. Teeming with life. Large numbers of fish. Because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. Look at the end of verse 9. Oh, come on. If you've never underlined something in your Bible, now's the time to do it. Where the river flows, everything will live. Get that into you. Where the river flows, the river represents the Holy Spirit. Where the river flows, everything will live. And I love the fact that the river, it's not rain. It's a river and it flows through a temple and from an altar. 
It doesn't just appear. God's goodness and his life and his power flows through a temple. A temple is a place of presence. And the altar is a place of offering and sacrifice and worship. And if we want to see the river of the Holy Spirit flowing and bringing life, then our lives should be marked by the presence of God and should be marked by offering and sacrifice and worship. I believe the river of life will flow to this world through a worshiping people who prioritize the presence of God, not only corporately, but individually. That's the vessel. That's the temple through whom this river of life will flow through a place of presence and sacrifice. So we have the water from the rock. We've got Moses striking the rock. Hit me, see how I bleed. I bleed life. (laughs) And then we have the water from this temple as well, from the altar, from the place of sacrifice. Now let's go into the New Testament and see how the New Testament writers bring this forward. Obscure little verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. At the start of the chapter, this is Pentecost Sunday. I want thirsty people. When people going home, I don't want you going out of here satisfied. I want you going out of here thirsty, desperate for Jesus, desperate for the Holy Spirit in your life. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 3, Paul is looking back to Israel's time in the wilderness. And he says, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Paul identifies the rock. He says that rock was a picture or a symbol of Jesus with his people that rock that they drank from. He he associates the rock, you've got to keep with me here. You're not going to, when the plot all comes together at the end, you're going to miss it. The rock in the wilderness that was struck from which life flowed, Paul says that was Jesus. Yes, there was a real rock, a geographical, real physical rock that was there at Horeb, but Paul says it represents Jesus. He was the rock in the wilderness. And in fact, it's not in the Bible, but according to some Jewish tradition, the rock moved around with the people. So Paul identifies the rock. We have seen a rock getting struck and we have seen that life came from it. And then John identifies Jesus as the temple all over the place in John and in other scriptures as well. But in John chapter 1, verse 14, famous verse, Read it at Christmas, but we should read it a lot more than that. It says that the Word became flesh. That's Jesus. And it says it made his dwelling among us. And you know now, because I've told you many times, and you maybe knew already, that that, when it says that the Word made his dwelling among us, it literally says he tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us. His temple was among us. Jesus is identified as being the temple. Remember, a temple is a place of presence and sacrifice and offering and worship. 
And John says, Jesus is that temple. So he's the rock. Paul says he's the rock that got struck and bled life. And John says he's the temple from which there's an altar and a place of sacrifice from which a river flowed. And John runs with this theme throughout his gospel over and over and over again. Most obviously in John chapter 4 where there's a woman at a well. And she's a woman who has a bad history. And I don't want to go into detail on her story this morning. I just want to draw out one thing. She, she came, she lived in shame. She was alone. She tried to get smart with Jesus and tried to go into a bit of a theological discussion with him. But Jesus cut to the chase very early in the conversation. And he didn't say, in verse 10, he didn't say, you know what, you go home and clean yourself up and meet me here in three days. You know, he didn't say, you know, you have done too many wrong things and I'm sorry, it's too late for you. Straight away, he says to her in verse 10, he basically says, you know what, I've got living water. Do you want some? Do you want some? I've got living water. You should be asking me for it. Now, he's going to address her past and, and her history later on. But first things first. Before, she, before the theological argument begins or before her past is addressed, he's like, I've got living water. Do you want it? Is that the way we approach people? You know, if somebody comes to us and, and they're really struggling, maybe under the guilt and shame of a, of a terrible background, is our instinct just to say, you know what, we'll, we'll talk about that sometime. We'll talk about, we'll talk about that. But I've got living I know someone who's got living water. Do you want to drink? Do you want to drink deep from King Jesus? Drink deep from the Holy Spirit? You see, the water that Jesus talks about is in verse 10 is living water. Jesus, in, in, later on in John's Gospel, again, verses you know so well. He says in John 10, verse 10, that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that you might have life. The church should just be pulsing with life. Life. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Now, let me just try to suggest a correction in our thinking. It might come as a shock to you, but the thief is not the devil in this passage. Now, one of the things I realized after years of study and deep thought was that John 10 comes after John 9. It's good, isn't it? And in John 9, Jesus is having a dispute with the Pharisees. And that spills over into John 10. And yes, the devil is behind everything that is opposed to God. But when Jesus says there's a thief who tries to steal and kill and destroy, the devil is behind it, but I do believe he's addressing religion and religious legalistic mindsets. That's the thief that comes to steal and kill and destroy the thieves are the religious leaders who have not led the flock well. Jesus says, I have come that you might have life. <laughs> life. 
What comes out of the rock? Water. What does water bring? It brings life. What comes from the altar at the temple? A river of life. And everywhere it flows, there is life. Do you see the theme? Pentecost, the Holy Ghost came that we would be alive. Alive. Fully alive. Clean, lit. You know what, I would rather, and I'm not saying this to be provocative in any way, I'd rather be in a room full of foul-mouthed sinners cursing like sailors than a room full of religious people. Just kills me. Kills me. Just leaves me dry and empty. And you know what? <laughs> Jesus is just like that. And where do you find him over and over and over and over and over again? can't stand the religion. He can't stand the legalism of the Pharisees. He wants to bring life to people. Do we bring life to people? When somebody spends time with you, do they go away feeling more alive than when they came? It's a hard question to answer. I sometimes, you know, I would, just, I would love it in school. <laughs> And I would never put this on my end of course evaluation form on Google Docs for the kids to fill in, but I'd love to, you know, little question at the end. After two years of studying in my room, do you feel more alive? Have you encountered something more than just education? Do you know those people that you're with and you just come away feeling Room full of them right here. <laughs> yeah. You, you just come away thinking, that was good. I'm going to meet him again. I'm going to meet her again. Because when I go away from that person, I feel more alive. Jesus came to bring life. The Holy Spirit came to give life. He was full of life. Full of life. Sometimes we have this, this, this view of Jesus that he was austere and harsh and never laughed he wasn't fully human if he never laughed okay if, if you say that jesus never laughed and never enjoyed himself then you're you're denying the doctrine of the incarnation he was a funny guy he made up stories about people with camels in their soup and planks in their eyes he's a funny guy he was full of life full of life are we full of life Ultimately, where does the water come then in this story of Jesus, this living water that he talks about? It comes in John 19. And again, we're in familiar ground, but this is just when I realized Pentecost Sunday was coming, I just thought, come on, come on. John 19, I'm taking you to the movie scene again. We're at the cross. And Jesus is on the cross and he's already dead. We... A lot of time we picture the cross way, way high up off the ground, and it probably wasn't. Jesus was probably, you know, his, his feet might have been about, about that far off the ground because they usually crucified people sort of quite, quite low down so that you could walk past them and get in their face and spit at them, give them a hard time. It's horrendous. They, were, they frequently weren't, you know, high, high up. So Jesus is on the cross and he's already dead. And a picture of the scene around the foot of the cross, you've got some Roman soldiers who have finished their day's work and they've got some wine and they finish off the wine. 
It's the same wine that they gave to Jesus and they, they slurp the last bit of the wine and then they need to decide, is he definitely dead? Because what they did, a bit gross, but what they did was if, if you weren't dead, they broke your legs and then you couldn't push yourself up to get a breath anymore and death came quickly. So they got a spear and they rammed the spear into his side to see what would happen. Would there be any response? And they put the spear into his side and there's no response. Blood coming out of his side in, in John 19. And they pack up their stuff and they're passing around their jug of wine and leaving and the cross is deserted now. There's Jesus' body on it and the two guys either side of them, they're there as well and everybody else is dispersing but on the on my my scene, the 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 camera's just zooming in really slowly as the crowd disperses, and it and it goes into that goes and zooms in against that wound in his side, that spear mark in his side, and from a distance you can see the red, you can see the blood coming out of the wound. But as it, as it zooms in more and more, and you look at it, there's something else coming out of the wound as well. It's not just blood. In John 19, 34, it says there was blood and there was water. Do you understand that we have a public scene? We have a trial scene. We have God very intentionally and very publicly saying, strike me and see how I bleed. In front of everyone. All the officials and the elders and the rulers and the religious people and the, the Roman leaders. I'm going to stand up on a rock on Calvary. Whack me and see what comes out. And what comes out is blood which cleanses from sin. But that's not where it stops. Because water comes as well. And suddenly all the Old Testament images start to flood together. This is why you can keep on reading the Bible year after year after year after year after year. All those images flood together. We've got a temple. We've got the presence of God in Jesus. We've got the rock that Paul said was with them in the wilderness. We've got a place of sacrifice on the cross. We've got a place of presence. We've got a place where we are going to see the character of God. Exposed. It's all gathered up in one person and he is struck and he bleeds life. Life. Not death. Not oppression. Life. But that's just a trickle. You know, the water that's coming from his side is just a trickle. It's like that water that initially flowed in the temple in Ezekiel 47 from, from the altar. Just a little trickle. Where's the flood? Where's the, the river so deep you can swim in it? Well, it comes 50 days later on the day of Pentecost. Jesus was cruci crucified on Passover or around Passover depending just on how the, how the calendar and how the timing sets it, sets it out. But he was crucified at Passover. And then 50 days after Passover, there was another feast. You read about it in Leviticus called the Feast of Weeks. Seven weeks after Passover and a day. But it became known as the Feast of Pentecost in the Greek-speaking world because pente means five or fifty. Feast of Pentecost. 
And 50 days after the, the Passover, this feast is being observed by the Jews. Where is the great river that Ezekiel saw? In Acts 2, on the day, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. What was that? Was that the trickle? Was that the ankle deep? Was it the knee deep? Was it the waist deep water? Was it the water that you could swim in? It's almost as if the New Testament writers struggle to find a word. And they come up with a word in Acts chapter 1 and verse 5. Luke uses it. John uses it. You will be baptized. And what does that mean when you just look up the original meaning of the word? It means you will be submerged. Deluge of water. (laughs) The living water. And when you're submerged, you're no longer in control. And I don't mean that in a, in a reckless way that we behave in in manner where we lose our self-control. That's not what I mean at all. What I mean is you're now yielded to the Spirit where His current wants to go, you're carried. You go with Him. Complete immersion. This picture of baptism is what Ezekiel was looking for as he wrote about that temple. It is the water flowing from the rock. It is life for a dead world. And where it comes in Acts chapter 2 is a people who are united in their desperation for God. Desperate for Him. Can we be that people? Desperate for Him. And after that flood came, they feared nothing. It's brilliant in the Jesus Storybook Bible. Any of you that have it, read it to your kids or used to read it to your kids. In the first page, they're in the upper room and it's black and white and everybody looks really quite scared in the wee picture. And then on the next page, it's all full color. (laughs) They feared nothing. Do you know what? The Holy Ghost makes you fearless. Fearless. I believe that God is bringing us as a church into more authority in prayer and in spiritual warfare. The more we just get into the river of the Holy Ghost and embrace and throw ourselves open and say, fill me, fill me and fill me and fill me again. Fearless. You know, demonic issues, bring it on. You will bow the knee to King Jesus. (laughs) Fearless. Fearless. And I believe that without looking for it, God is going to use this church and this people for in, in deliverance, not because we're special, but because we are a people of sacrificial praise and offering who prioritize the presence of God. And God then says, I can use that. My river can flow through that because they prioritize my presence and they, they are a people of praise. Picture my mind yesterday of somebody walking through an orchard, just inspecting fruit. 
and there were one or two apples that were ready to eat and the rest were really close. It was like somebody just walking through saying, the harvest is very close. We're seeing the first fruits. We're seeing the start of it. But it's very close to the harvest time. We're praying, we're seeking God for harvest, for transformation. In John 7, I'm nearly finished. Jesus says that if anyone is thirsty... Again, and we're, at, we're at the temple in this scene at a feast in Jerusalem. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. And there's water trickling out of the temple that the priest has poured out of a jug. And Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, come to me. Is anyone thirsty? Is anyone thirsty? And what he goes on to say is, after you've come to him and drank, he says, out of his belly, and the Greek word is class, it's the word womb. Gentlemen, you have a womb. <laughs> Ladies, you have a womb. <laughs> Children, you have a womb. Out of his womb, life will come. Once you drink that, you don't just drink it and keep it in you. Once you drink that living water, it starts to flow out of you to others. The flow of life can only come through a temple, church. You individually are a temple. We corporately are a temple. And the flow of life can only go through a temple. Is anyone thirsty? It's not so much that we need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Because that would suggest that God has not poured out the Holy Spirit. And he has. We need a move of the Holy Spirit, but primarily what do we need? We need altars. We need worship and praise and presence. Prioritizing Him. Putting ourselves in a place where we can say, here I am, send me. Are we desperate like those early believers? We were up the hills a few weeks ago with Christina and Mike and the girls. And Katie said something over and over again. She said, is there a river here that we can drink from? I thought you were saying more than you know. <clears throat> is there a river here that we can drink from? That's what the world is saying. Is there a river that we can drink from? And you can only drink when you're in the hills. You can only drink from fast moving water high up in the hills. That's where it's clear and fresh. You don't drink the slower moving water down the bottom. Is there a river here? Can you, can you hear the town subconsciously saying to the church, is there a river here that we can drink from? Or do we just keep on drinking dirty, polluted water in other places? If there's no altar, there's no river. And if there's no river, there's no life. Do you want to experience the power of the Holy Spirit in your lives? Do you? Do you? <laughs> we were at a conference yesterday or a workshop about prophetic ministry. Do you want to experience that? Because I tell you what, it will light your lamp. <laughs> I was... We were getting into little little groups yesterday and just just praying for people and and there was a guy uh, another pastor in in our group and another fellow I didn't know either of them but we just took a few minutes to pray for each other and as soon as I started praying for this pastor 
picture came into my mind of an oxyacetylene welding torch. You know the type you'd use to cut through metal or to, to join two couple of bits of metal together. And, and I saw this, as soon as I started praying for him, I said, listen, this is, this is what's in my mind. I'm just going to share, share it with you. And if it's a pile of rubbish, just let it drop to the floor, you know. And I said, this, this torch, and I talked about the two gases coming into it. One of them's the fuel and one of them's the oxygen so that the fuel burns really strongly and bright and all that. So I shared that with him and said, listen, you, you take that and do what you want with it. And then I was talking to him over coffee at lunchtime and he says... Years ago, I worked in the shipyard, and I used to use those torches. And he says, yesterday I was sitting talking to somebody about oxyacetylene welding torches. Now, you can't make that up. You can't make that up. Yeah. And that guy was encouraged, and he was blessed, and he was strengthened. Do you want to be in the river? Do you want to be used by God? Do you want to see his life flow through you to others? Young people, do you think this stuff only happens to your ma and dad? Hmm? Do you think that the Holy Spirit is subject to the church's child protection policy? <laughs> and that there's a line in it that says, the Holy Ghost cannot move in any child under the age of 18. Hmm? Do you have something in your mind that causes you to think, at some stage when I'm older, the Holy Spirit might start to move through me, but not now? That's a lie. That's a lie. In fact, your pure hearts are maybe more pliable and more usable for the Holy Ghost than a lot of the rest of us. Why don't you? Why don't you just say, Holy Spirit, come and flood me. <laughs> come and show me things. Why when you're lying down in your bed at night, just say, Holy Spirit, just give me dreams about Jesus. Speak to me. Why don't you sit down with your mom or your dad or whoever, your brother or cousin or somebody this afternoon and just say, just say a quick prayer of me that I'd encounter the Holy Ghost. I want God to use me before I'm 18. <laughs> you see, once you've experienced this, you never look back. You never look back. <laughs> once you've drank that water, no other water will do. No other water will do. The world is not attractive anymore because you've found something that's pure and life-giving. So let's pray and then we're going to worship. Give thanks on Pentecost Sunday for awaken our souls. Fall on us, Holy Ghost. Fill us with life and power to be your witnesses in this world. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Bless the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know, if anybody wants prayer for anything at all, um, there'll be a few of us who'll go into the prayer room afterwards. And if you want to just, not a counseling session or anything like that, but just, just want somebody to pray with you, a few people. Maybe, Jackie, if you have time before you go to work, you could jump in for a few.